This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com forward slash B-E. Welcome back, listeners, to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. Thanks for being here with us again today. I'm excited for today's conversation with Dr. Byron McClure and Dr. Kelsey Reed. They are co-authors of a new book called Hacking Deficit Thinking. Uh, Byron and Kelsey are both nationally certified school psychologists. Byron is founder of Lessons for SEL, and he was previously the assistant director of school redesign at a high school in Washington, D.C. Kelsey is a school psychologist in Prince George's County uh, in Maryland, just outside of D.C., and we're going to chat about this book. We're going to chat about the eight reframes that will change the way you think about strengths-based practices and equity in schools. Byron and Kelsey, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. So uh, one of the first things I wanted to touch on here is um, something that you kind of address in the book, which is that educators, by reading the book, can unlearn student blame and reframe their thinking to focus on student strengths, right? And so much of the book is about those strengths and how we highlight them. Um, but I really want to touch on this blame piece and ask you, you know, how does this deficit thinking place the blame on students? And by doing so, what, what are some of the consequences of that when we're sort of centered on students as the as the focus of our blame versus the other areas of the system that we'll get into? Yeah, sure. Um, I can get us started. So I think um, when we talk about blame, what we're really meaning there is that when a student is struggling with something or a child is having a difficult time doing something that we expect them to be able to do in the school environment, um, if they can't do that thing, we are often blaming them for, for that challenge rather than thinking about, okay, you know, what, first of all, what things are they good at? What things can they do? And also what may be some other reasons why they can't do that um, that are outside of their control or what factors are within my control to help support them. So, you know, what we kind of really touch on in the book is that this blame can lead into it lowering of our expectations as educators. So we come to this, you know, understanding or realization that we don't think that they're capable, you know, so we lower our expectations. And then what we see as the impact is um, negative student outcomes. So students will always rise to the level of expectations we set. So, you know, it's kind of like a um, self-fulfilling prophecy that we determine um, before we even really know our students. And it's, you know, obviously disparately impacting or disproportionately impacting students of color, students with disabilities, who we have um, biases already for. Um, I don't know if you wanna add anything to that, Byron. Yeah, I'll just quickly add, um, Kelsey mentioned the word disproportionality. And if you even, you can even guess, right? Like you don't even have to be a student of research to know that uh, there's a historic trend in education and really across industries where, you know, youth of color, those who have been historically marginalized um, often have poor outcomes in comparison, 
you know, to, to their peers and, you know, to, to those of the predominant culture. And we have to examine why often we're not really doing the deep level analysis that requires why have these trends persisted despite outcomes or despite interventions, despite, you know, people's efforts, these outcomes can be predicted. They have been persistent. And instead of looking at the root cause of why, people often will place blame on those kids. Well, they're underperforming because that's who they are or that's the neighborhoods that they came from or their mother performed poorly, their brother performed poorly. How many times have we been in, in rooms at the start of the year and to just say, oh, I had such and such as brother, uh, the apple must not fall far from the tree. And then we get into the cycle of blaming, the cycle of, as Kelsey was saying, low expectations. And then it becomes, well, these kids can only perform so well, uh, which goes to labeling and all of these other things. And in our book, we're trying to bring attention to that and some of the reasons why, um, even all the way down to looking at some of the tools that we are using um, that continue to perpetuate a lot of these outcomes. But we'll pause there um, because it's, it's an important question and we hope to you know begin scratching the surface in our book. Yeah, and it, se- it seems like one of the things that's so difficult about this is that it happens before you know it right? um, because you know due to one the emphasis that schools have on well-rounded education and learning you know being good at everything and then two even something like um, when you have a, a new student be assigned to the school who you know is going to have an IEP for example the first thing you're doing is figuring out okay what are the areas where this student needs these extra interventions and that's the first thing you know about them before you know what they're good at what what they might be flourishing at and it's almost like the areas where they are at or at or above um, you know where you expect them to be given their their age, those things get set to the side and say, okay, good, we don't have to worry about those things. And we do need to focus on these versus saying, hey, these are strengths, let's learn a lot more about that. And um, and we're not neglecting the areas where the student is struggling. We'll, we'll, we will come back to that, but we also wanna understand what they're really good at. And uh, I think that leads us into the discussion about some of the um, the labels, the, the coded labels, some some of which are more codified, right, than than others. Um, but some of the the terms that are used in schools that you're advocating that we kind of want to get away from these, um, which you know a lot of times is is not that easy, right? Because sometimes these are a common language, and we're saying, okay, if if I'm an educator and I need to communicate to another educator what's happening with this student. I want to use terminology that they understand, but then if that terminology is rooted in deficit thinking, now we're just kind of infecting one another with that, and we need to kind of figure out another way. What are some of those terms? You don't have to go through the entire list, but a few that are the most common frequent ones that you're really saying we need to think about a different way to go about this. One of the top ones is low. Hmm. Oh my goodness. I'm sure listeners probably cringed or maybe like, yep, that's the one. That's the one. Like we hear low, especially as as psychologists, like me and Kelsey and I'm sure a lot of psychologists, a lot of educators hear that word. Oh, that kid is low. Uh, You know, we might get stopped in the hallway. Like, hey, doc, they call me doc uh, in, in my schools. Like such and such is having so many problems and he's, mm-hmm. he's just really low or she's just really low. And I, what's the problem? Like, what can we quantify it? Can we, you know, what's the data around? It's like, I, I don't know, but this kid is just really low. Well, what does that mean? And right. you, you mentioned the word, it becomes our common language and in and of itself, like that's the problem that this is just commonplace in this everyday language that's used. And you know, there's not uh, an examination of why are we using this type of language? Which type of students are we using this language for? And oftentimes it's those who have been historically marginalized, those from high poverty communities. This is the language that we're using to discuss our students. And it just becomes like, that's who they are. That's their culture. And like, we just have to accept it. But Kelsey and I, what we're doing, like we're not trying to be the language police, but we're pushing against that. I'm real big on social emotional learning. And one of the the first things that 
I often talk about in SEL is self-awareness. And what we're really hoping to do is bring this to, to people's conscious awareness. Like, hey, there's better terminology. Like we don't have to accept this as commonplace in our practices. Yeah, what, right. I was gonna say, and what kind of comes with that is when we use these words is that whole word becomes a student's identity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we say, you know, that student is low, it's like we have this, we're putting them into this box and we're not thinking about the bigger picture of all these other characteristics that they bring to the table. It's just they're sped, they're this, they're that, rather than, you know, thinking holistically. Yeah, and, and that's a great one to um, to point out because it's a word that, or a term that really be, means nothing except deficit, right? It basically, you know, you might as well say this kid is not smart, this kid, you know, what I, and, and if, especially if the the child internalizes that it just means that I am below my peers and I'm down here and there's absolutely <laughs> we don't know why we don't know what what are we going to do to help it and um, and ultimately it's just not it's not productive in any way <laughs> um, you know versus some of the other terms that are more specific at least I know what you're talking about we need to figure out a better way to focus on more of the strengths and you know optimism around the learning here um, but you know there's a reason why some of them persist. Um, but, you know, we will kind of get a little further into this, too, because uh, one of the so this book is built around eight reframes um, and there are eight reframes that are going to change the way educators think about strength based practices and equity in schools. So it's really focused on getting from that deficit to more of an asset based strengths based mindset um, and approach to kids. And so. Uh, we'll touch on, there's two sections of the book. So the eight of them, the, the first section is the background, history, systems, and data. The second section is the application, which is thinking, believing, and flourishing. I want to definitely spend a little more of our conversation on the application piece, but I think we should start um, with a few of the pieces that are in the background. And one of them is your second reframe, which is uh, problems exist within the system, not kids. And I think the first part that a lot of educators may kind of, you know, lean back a little bit when they hear this and they say, well, I, you know, not that I don't think this is true, but how can I identify my sphere of influence? I, all right. Yes, there's problems with the system, but I'm just one person. What am I supposed to do about that? Um, you do write about individuals identifying their, their sphere of, you know, where they can make a difference. So, um, you know, how do you sort of speak to that first um, so that I see as an individual teacher, school leader, et cetera, how I see myself uh, making a difference here. So Ross, what I'm loving about, about you so far is you are a very practical person. Like, all right, let's get away from all the theory and fluff and let's let's make this practical for, for educators. And whew, Ross, this, that's a very real thing. And yeah. man, almost without fail, like when I have speaking engagements and I'm talking on these issues, I could feel like I gave like the best presentation, the best session. And then people would say, okay, but what can I do? Like, really? Like, how do I get started? And I mean, it's a very real thing. And so how I approach it is, and, and like you said, we kind of talk about it in the book, even before you can get to a person's sphere of influence, we got to focus on our sphere of control. And what right. that is are things that you, that I, that Kelly, that people who are listening have direct, immediate, we can touch it, we can feel it, we can manipulate it. Like I made a choice that I wanted to wear this shirt for this mm -hmm. call the, in the school to prison pipeline. I put this watch on, I can decide to get up. I have control over what I'm in this moment, what I'm thinking. Those are things that Byron McClure can control. Inside of my professional role and responsibility, there are certain things that I can control that I can't. Right. We have to be able to focus on what we can immediately control. As a very practical example, when I started as an intern and then my first year as a practitioner, I knew that I wanted to change systems and uh, end the school to prison pipeline and do all these big things. The reality was I couldn't do that. I had to focus on my sphere of control. What was in my control was printing out this one page document saying, hey, this is who I am. These are my strengths, what I'm good at. And this is what I want to do. And what I want to do is take your students who you might have, you know, you might have experienced difficulties with. Um, I want to have a social skills group, a SEL skills group, and I want to work with those students. 
And then I went, got out of my office. I went to those teachers and said, hey, this is the email. Let's discuss. I could do consultation. We talked about it. Then I created a group and then I worked with those students. And then guess what happened from that? Then you mentioned the word spirit of influence. When teachers and school leaders started to see, hey, like this, these groups, these SEL groups, the social school groups are actually working and student data is improving. Now let's add a little bit more to it. We could get more students involved. The counselors started to get involved. And then the spirit of influence around me, I started making an impact on those around me. And then guess what happened? After that had success, then the school leaders were like, oh, we need all students in our school to be able to do this. Now I'm working at the systems level right. at that school. And then it scaled up to the entire district. So just by focusing on my sphere of control, we can see how these practices can scale up. And so I share with everyone, what do you have immediate control over? And what's one thing that you can do today inside of your school? Focus on that. Because if you don't, you run the dangers of if you're focusing on influencing school-wide systems, you're going to have frustration, burnout, anxiety, all of these different things. And we don't want that. So focus within you, what you have control over today. Yeah. And one of these things, Kelsey, is about um, first, like addressing inequity, right? And then actively cultivating equity. Um, and, you know, that fits exactly within this conversation around, okay, let's make a difference here. Let's figure out what's working for my students here. And then that scales up to more students in another school or it's one student and then it's two and then it's five and then it's a whole school. Um, what are some of those steps when you're getting started and you're saying, okay, I'm comfortable. I have my sphere of control. I can do this. I, I have my students here and I'm going to make it. When you're saying first, like address that inequity and then move toward, okay, now we're actively cultivating that equity. I think the first thing that we need to do, well, I always like to start with data. So when we talk about identifying, you know, where there are inequities, where you can make a difference, we all have access. I don't know if people know this, but you can access your district, school, state level data um, for free. It's usually online, your state department's website. Um, so if you go there, so for example, as a school psychologist, I may be interested in um, special education disparities, you know, so what percentage of, of students of a certain race, a certain um, language that they speak or um, a certain gender are identified under a certain category. So maybe that's an area of interest for me. If I find that data, now I have reason to you know, begin a process. So I can take this data, take this conversation to whoever is involved. It could be administrators. It could be the teachers that I work with to just say, you know, this is a problem that I've identified and here's the data that shows, you know, this is something we kind of need to address and then go from there and start talking about what we think may have, um, you know, led to this, um, how we can as a team kind of start looking at our practices, our policies to see what types of things we can change um, at our level. Another thing um, that I kind of just going back to a little bit what Byron was talking about in terms of things within our control, you re we really cannot minimize the impact of language, of expressing our interest and passion for these certain things. You never know who might be listening. You know, if I'm having a conversation with a teacher and we overhear another teacher use the word low, and let's say I say, you know, hey, you know, I really don't like using that word. And I, I do this a lot, kind of just reframe, you know, a simple word when I'm consulting with teachers. Let's say another teacher overhears me say that and they're like, oh, I, I've always thought that I never knew, you know, I would love to talk more about that. You've got another person who is interested and you guys can start working together to make that change happen. So, you know, making it clear where you stand, what language you do or don't tolerate um, is can really have a snowball effect. Yeah, where, where does the, on this, you know, particular, I mean, this is a, this is a, uh, quite an important reframe uh, to set the foundation for all the other uh, parts that come next. Where does the pushback come from at this stage? Is it, you know, those educators who say, well, you know, my objectives are good. I, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't mean anything negative by it. So I don't really see what the big deal is, or is it others that, that are maybe saying, um, is it maybe almost that 
that unfortunate reality where that that system often really dampens um, the individual enthusiasm around these things to say, look, I really want to like make a difference. And then the school is saying, well, you know, just do your job. Right. And uh, I could see, I mean, because I've talked to a lot of especially new educators who come right out of the schools, this, you know, younger generation of educators, they have, they have big goals around social justice and around the difference they want to make. And then if they get into the wrong school, they're surrounded by people who are basically saying, no, <laughs> that that's not how we do it here. Um, and then it very quickly uh, ends up getting stripped out of them or they get pushed out because they're not saying, um, well, that this is not the type of work I wanted to do. Um, uh, but, you know, particularly to this, I mean, where do you see that, that pushback coming from? And then how do you advocate um, for educators to respond to that, um, anticipate it, and then say, okay, I'm, I'm ready for what they're going to say? Yeah, that is a huge problem. And I think that just to kind of start this conversation, this is why we felt that this book was necessary. You know, just really getting to a place where, hey, we all need to talk about this and laying it out there and getting these conversations started. I think um, a lot of times it can be really daunting for educators to hear. And like you said, they may say, well, you know, I'm not doing anything. You know, it's not intentional. I'm not meaning to. But I always take it back to the data. And I think kind of Byron mentioned this earlier. One thing that we can also do is share examples of when these practices are put into place, how we do see positive outcomes. You know, it may seem like a lot of work right now, but if we get it, if we get it going, you know, we're, the data does show that, you know, we will see less disparities. We will see better outcomes when we address the practices that we are engaging in that are leading to them. I think one thing that I, I always, um, I like to say, you know, in kind of, having people understand our contribution to inequities is, um, I'm trying to think of an example. So let's say like we have more black students that are being suspended compared to white students. You know, do we, do we truly believe that black students are inherently more likely to misbehave than white students? You know, if you ask that direct question, like, is that really what we think? Because look at our data, our outcomes are showing this disparity and we know that that's not true. So there's something that we're doing, we are doing this, you know, that is leading to these outcomes. So I think just putting it in plain, simple terms like that really just sends, drives the message home, you know, like statistically that is impossible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you mentioned the data and um, at the, well, at the risk of, you know, being deficit-minded, people I've worked with, whether in education, marketing, whatever, the thing that a lot of people really uh, don't do a great job with often is making meaning of the data and really understanding, especially in this digital age, when we can get as much data as we want. And there's always, we need more, we need more. And then it's like, okay, but what is, what is this data actually telling us? What does this data represent? In schools, all that data is doing is it's representing certain aspects of a student and their performance and their, you know, potentially underneath that might be their personality, their strengths, um, you know, their uh, affinities, right? But you have to kind of dive a couple levels deeper. So your third reframe that comes next in the book is to humanize your data. Um, and there was this quote that you had shared from one of your collaborators in the conclusion of the book, actually, that I thought related back to this. Um, the, the contributor's name is Ashley Tucker. And she said, everybody has somebody that they care about. Everybody has something that they love. And when we allow students the opportunity to share those things with us, it helps us to see them in a different light. Um, and to me, it's like, this is exactly what this is about. It's about who, who is in this data, right? Because um, we can have all these data points. Like you said, we could have these, you can have all this data that just shows students of a certain demographic are having more disciplinary cases referred to, um, you know, than others. And you could just take that at face value and say, well, you know, these are the, the bad kids. Or you could say, well, like, what, what exactly is going on here? Um, who's making these referrals? Why are they making them? What are we missing here? Um, but um, Byron, uh, since, since we haven't let you say anything in a while, um, Talk about this humanize your data point and why 
this was such an important emphasis for you um because like i said you know i mean this really stands out as critical because especially as we're always looking for more and more and more data um, maybe what we need to be looking for is is just understanding our data better yeah and i i love one of the cool things that Kelsey and I did, because we're both psychologists, we wanted to bring in the voices of teachers, of educators, and shout out to Ashley because she's a, a special education teacher, um, a person who's doing the work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about seeing the humanity in people. And for some yeah. reason, like we, we've lost that. Yeah. And what Kelsey and I, what we hope to do within this book is to underscore the importance of data, but even more than that, underscoring the significance of seeing people in the work that we're doing and getting back to that and recognizing that we're using that data to make decisions that will benefit people, our young people, our staff, our school communities. And when we can do that, when we're coming, when we're bringing all of those, the data points, the statistics, but we're bringing that to the IEP table or art if you're in Texas or, you know, uh, to school leaders to make decisions about the day-to-day, about those systems level things, then it just becomes impactful. And then when we can see that, I'm making a decision for, for Tom or Sally or Saquon or Marquisha or whoever it is, then it's like, oh, like I am going to think twice about the decision that I'm about to make. Now, imagine if we did that, stay with me, at a policy level where we are now making decisions with people at mind and going back to the inequity point, we will be able to examine that data, which is important, say, who is going to be impacted by the decisions that I'm going to make? Who is going to continue reaping benefits from whatever decisions that's making? Who will be harmed by decisions? Who will be forgotten by those decisions? And what is doing it? And we call this out a lot in our book, but it's being human-centered in our approach, recognizing that there are unmet needs, and then using those data points to move as quickly and efficiently and meaningfully as we can to improve those outcomes because it's people that we're dealing with. Yeah, I wonder like so much how much this relates to the, you know, the the too often um, reality in schools to kind of trust sort of these tools over teachers or these processes over practitioners kind of thing where it's like, we're trusting that the data says this, so we got to trust the data versus saying, you know, as a teacher, what are you seeing? Or you know, what do you know about this student? Or what, you know, what what do you think um, you might want to do here to kind of help them to, to reach their potential, right? Um, versus feeling like we have to take that data as um, sacred and say, well, you know, I know that that says that, but realistically, I'm not worried about it because of X, Y, Z. And, and what I'm going to do is work with this student on these things, because I know that's where they really, um, have a lot of strengths. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, uh, often, um, you know, cause to humanize it really, I mean, there's a human on both sides of that. Right. Um, so we're humanizing the student, but we also need to recognize the humanity and the, um, you know, the personal experience of our our educators who are doing that interpretation. Um, cool, so we're gonna move on. Now we'll go to section, this is the second section, I think reframe four is where it kind of starts um, more of the, the application pieces. Um, and uh, and so reframe four, we'll touch on a few of these, but it's we can hack deficit thinking. So um, this is a good one because it is the title of the book. So yeah, if this says we can't do it, then um, it would be anticlimactic. But um, you talk about deficit distortions and uh, kind of how um, this is, I think, something that folks might be struggling with if they're saying, okay, I'm having a hard time getting over this deficit thinking or I'm having a hard time figuring out an alternative, right? I know that this, that I don't want to be a deficit thinker, but I, 
I, I don't know how to do it differently. Um, what, what are a few of those deficit distortions that you're, you're talking about, or can you kind of describe them? Just, you know, a few of them that people may say, oh yeah, oh, okay. That's that, you know, that relates to me. Um, because I, I do think this entire, this entire reframe is actually the part that a lot of our listeners could think, start thinking about right now today before they've even read the book. Um, some of these activities and, and, you know, thought exercises here that they can really start to reflect on, uh, you know, how they can start to make these improvements. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is, like you said, really where we kind of get into the meat of um, the practical side of this. Mm -hmm. So um, a couple that come to mind, I think that are the easiest to, I guess, see within your own practices. The first one would be overgeneralizations. So what that means is that we, you know, when you've been working as an educator for a really long time, with that comes experience, of course, right? But with that also comes, you think that when you are presented with a situation that seems similar to something you've had before, you begin to generalize, you know, what you expect to happen. So for example, I think this example may be in the book. Um, if you're working with a student who happens to be black, and you're having behavior concerns, and let's say you're having a hard time getting in contact with this child's um, parent for some reason, you know, you're trying to touch base with them to figure out how to support the student and you're just, you're not able to. Um, in the future, if you have another black student who is having behaviors, you may think, oh man, here we go. I know I'm not gonna be able to, you know, um, contact their parents. They're not gonna be supportive, this and that. And you go down this whole rabbit hole of overgeneralizing this one student who just because they're the same race, you know, doesn't mean that you're going to have that same exact experience, but that leads to this cycle. We, um, we talk about it in this chapter of the deficit square. It's this, um, this rare, very, very harmful cycle where we have um, our distortions impact our expectations, which impact our behaviors, which impact student outcomes. So that would be the first one. Um, Another one could be this um, kind of all or nothing thinking. So what that means, um, and these distortions, I do wanna just point out, are similar to cognitive distortions. So um, if you are a psychologist listening, you might know what cognitive distortions are. If you are not a psychologist, um, what they are are um, just faulty beliefs that are rooted in mental illness, oftentimes rooted in anxiety, depression, um, that are rooted in cognitive behavior therapy literature. So um, I would definitely look into it because a lot of the distortions we see in schools are very similar to these um, cognitive distortions. But um, for all or nothing thinking, that's kind of like it's either this or it's that. There's no blur, there's no gray area in between. And when that happens in schools, we are viewing students as this or that. And we're not seeing them for who they are, seeing them for any of that gray in between and making assumptions um, leading to lowering or, or hiring of expectations, um, impacting our behaviors, impacting student outcomes. So we see the deficit square kind of impact um, all of the different areas. And in the book, we do outline, I think we give some pretty specific examples of the whole process, you know, what the um, what the distortion is, what the expectation might be, what the behavior might be, and what the student outcome might be. Yeah. And is there like, uh, well, I know there is because I saw it, but um, an activity or an exercise that is a good starting point for educators to kind of go through and think about here's some of the perceptions or some of the you know terms and verbiage I've been using to think about students and um, let me think through what some alternatives might be. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is, I get really excited about this one because it's very similar to um, kind of what I found in my dissertation. But um, what one of them, I don't know if this is the one that you're thinking of, um, Ross, but what I'm thinking of is um, writing down on a piece of paper um, all of the reasons why you think a student is misbehaving or acting in a certain way. So you're going to write all of those down, just write them all down. Don't think twice about it. Um, and after you're done, go through and highlight in one color all of the times that you blamed a child, you know, so it could be, let's say, um, you know, they, their parent, you know, at, at home, their home life is, is X, Y, Z. So that's why they're misbehaving. Highlight that in one color, go through and do that for all of the times when you blamed and then get another highlighter and highlight all of the times where you did not blame the child, where you thought about factors that are within your control. So thinking about things that you can change um, to support the student. If you're noticing a lot of highlight of one color versus the other color, you know, that gives you a point of reflection that you can kind of sit back and think, okay, you know, what have I not thought of or what have I thought too much about um, and kind of right. you can go from there. 
Excellent. Um, so then reframe seven, so we'll skip one, but um, this is one that's about tapping into school-wide strengths. And there's uh, the belief um, that's listed here that, that we need to reframe is that we operate in at-risk schools, right? And when I think about that terminology and just even, you know, somebody who works in what they believe to be an at-risk school, um, you know, I just feel there's like this constant sense of high anxiety at all times. And it's just like, let's figure out what what is the lowest bar we could reach for so that we know that we can grab it, right? Um, and it's just, you know, you can think about how your perception of what our goals are for our students become just about let's just reach some reasonable baseline versus the way we really want to look at our students, which is what is their, you know, potential? What are their strengths? Where can they go? And, and it's, you almost have completely taken yourself out of the mindset of being able to do that because of just thinking about it as this, this at-risk environment where the expectation is failure right? um, or where, you know, at the very least, your definition of success is very, um, you know, less than ambitious. Uh, and, um, and, you know, even to the point of what you were uh, just talking about, Kelsey, of, of saying, okay, how can we take the blame away from the kids and kind of think about what's in our control? There's that piece of abdicating control and responsibility, right? Of saying, well, this is at risk and we can't do that much. We can only do this. And if we do this, we, we did our job. Um, what's the, I mean, so, so talk about this reframe, Byron, and about um, kind of, you know, how that terminology, and, and we'll get into a little bit about what, what it means to, to think about these school-wide strengths, but just to even, um, to even think about right the school from a strength-based perspective, the same way we're thinking about our students versus this just deficit environment. Yeah, and you know this is such a important conversation because <clears throat> at the individual level, you know if we're not careful, we can blame students. At the school-wide level, if we're not careful, we can blame school communities, mm -hmm. um, and then even where kids come from. And the dangers of that is, again, it's blaming students, blaming communities, but it's not examining, you know, contextual reasons, historical reasons, systemic reasons of why these things exist in the first place. Um, before we went live, like you talked about where your wife used to work, then I worked in, in the same uh, community. And in some of our school redesign work, like we started there, we had to examine the historical context of that school community. Why did we start there? Because we had to understand what we're working with inside of the school and we couldn't separate the school community with the individuals who attended that school. And what we had to really wrestle with is we can't blame students, we can't blame teachers, we can't blame staffs. And in real life, we're all because you're practical, like that's what was happening. And there were real conversations about, you know, what what's the future of this school, right? What's the future directions? Do we keep it open? Do we shut it down? Do we go through this radical transformation? And these were all real things that we really had to wrestle with. And, you know, so there is so much meaning and value of being able to examine the, the historical context of these schools and say, hey, these things exist because at some point, the community, the policies, the practices have failed our school community, which then trickle down to the individual teachers, then trickle, trickles down to the individual students. And when we can approach it from that way, then we can start to say, okay, this is where we are. And these are the things that we need to do to begin rectifying and repairing the harm that has been done. And what that could look like is, okay, we need to bring in student voice because student voice has been absent. We need to bring in community voice because community voice has been absent. We need to strengthen school community partnerships, we need to leverage the rich resources that are within this community. 
we need to leverage the rich resources uh, and partnerships and politicians that are in this community. And most importantly, which underscores the entire premise of the chapter is what are the strengths that are inherent to this school community? And so often what happens is we separate the two and that that's dangerous and it's not serving our kids. And again, from the practical, from the practical standpoint, what we did in our school is, look, we don't have all the answers. So we have to bring in community partners. We have to bring in parents from the community. We have to amplify student voice and then begin leveraging those strengths so that we can actually be co-creators and co-design solutions that can actually make a difference in the school communities where we work with. And then when we did those things, tapping into the strengths, tapping into social capital, tapping into uh, the rich resources, like we were able to start really moving the needle and making a difference um, in, in our whole school community. So it's, um, it's a lot, but you know, this is, it's an important chapter. Um, and, you know, we, we got to continue asking these type of questions. Right. And yeah, and, and uh, I'm often part of these conversations where they, you know, people will say things like, well, our schools haven't changed in 100 years. They still look like they used to. And um, and then often I think that that's not true. And and or even when they identify certain areas um, that they're focused on the wrong things. Um, and it's usually around, you know, technology, which is um of course, it's just a way of life, right? So it's semi-superficial when we're just thinking about the evolution of schools or also, okay, the way that schools are lined up. But to me, um, the biggest thing to think about the way schools were designed and the DNA with which they were infused that um, needs to change, but that people aren't necessarily thinking about is that it, schools were designed for who was in them. 100 years ago, which was what? It was, you know, the majority of students didn't really go through high school because they had to go out and work, right? So there was a self-selection of who was even in school and who were the students. They were white, right? They were homogenous. They weren't multicultural. They weren't diverse. Um, they weren't even necessarily a female, right? So, so that, so a lot of the things that were designed back then for what schools should look like are the expectations and assumptions that never really changed. And by now, a lot of decades have passed. So people may not realize the roots of that or be thinking about that and not be, you know, holding any malice around that. But when you look at it and say, okay, where did all this stuff come from? Why do we create these assumptions about what school is? Well, they were, you know, when it was designed, you know, who was who were in those schools and what did it look like? Um, so you write in here about making these cultural shifts within schools to uh, embrace school-wide strengths, and a lot of that is about you know embracing diversity, right? Cultural response and the cultural awareness and literacy and understanding that the strengths of our communities um, and that schools should be reflective and representative of their communities, not of some you know. Uh, ideal of you know what what perfection is supposed to be or, or whatever the case may be um can you talk a little bit about what's like some of these actual shifts like in a little more detail like specifically what you what you reference yeah i think one that i really like um is really focusing on increasing that student voice and I'm trying to remember what exactly, um, which one it is. I think it's the shared power or collectivism of really, and we talked about this already, asking our students, you know, what they are feeling, experiencing in the school community and what types of things will make learning a better place for them. So I think this whole idea of, you know, teacher is the like knows all and students are supposed to sit there and listen to them and you know they don't they don't know anything and they have to learn all that the teacher is saying like that is like the key of what we really need to shift um, of allowing students to to learn about topics that they're interested um, in learning about and you know I know we have common core we have all of these policy level things that are really kind of impacting the way our education manifests. But I think, you know, just if we can imagine a school environment where we're really bringing in student input 
We are, you know, embracing imperfections. We're not expecting students to, to be perfect all the time and, you know, disciplining them for, for, you know, behaving a way that is, is, is not expected, you know, even though it technically is developmentally appropriate for, for that age, you know, I think that's, that's a big one that we see um, of really just, you know, allowing our students to have that voice. And I think most of the reframes in this chapter do, or I'm sorry, most, yeah, most of the reframes in this chapter do focus on that of how can we leverage student voice and student choice in the way that they learn and um, in what they learn. Yeah. And we, yeah. we talk about it a little bit too. And I really just want to call out because a lot of the work I did in, in DC um, was on not just student voice and student agency, but creating a sense of belonging. And, you know, when we're talking about developing a school that prioritizes strengths, like we got to create spaces where students feel that their strengths are valued. We got to create spaces where kids feel like they belong with that, you know, and we're affirming who they are as people. Um, and that that matters. And creating those spaces will go a long way. And get, then guess what will happen? Like we'll start seeing improvements in that data that we mentioned a little bit earlier. So, Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's all really important stuff for schools to think about. And, uh, and that's also about um, what's, what makes each individual school unique, right? Like where, where is the school? Who are your students? Who are your families? What's your community? What, you know, what is the, um, the richness of, of the culture and the strengths of those around you? Uh, and it's, you know, part of the opportunity that school leaders and teachers and all the others working in those schools have to create an, an identity, right? And something that every, everybody who's involved with that school, whether they work there, whether their child goes there, whether they are the student, um, to have that sense of belonging and, and sense of, you know, the understanding that this was designed with me and for me and, and that they can, you know, students can see that um, and, and they're going to, they respond to that um, just as they respond negatively when they feel like, they had no input in it so or it wasn't designed for them right um so it's it really speaking of kind of strengths and assets that that's a a really solid opportunity there great so that brings us to the eighth reframe um which is about educators right so i think that's a perfect a perfect way to close the book perfect way to close the interview here and so your your reframe eight is educators deserve to flourish so um, of course, both of you as psychologists are, are familiar with this concept of flourishing from positive psychology, um, but maybe for our listeners who may not know as much about it, I know it's referenced uh, and Seligman's work is referenced throughout the book, but can you just talk about this idea of flourishing and what it's all about? Yes, I love to. I get excited. Like Kelsey gets excited over the data chapter. Like yeah. I love this chapter. And the idea of flourishing and really what it boils down to, um, Mara Seligman often considered to be one of the, the founders of the field of positive psychology. But his basic premise is that, you know, we we have become hyper-focused on mental illness. And that's an imperfect view of viewing people. And instead, we must have a more balanced, holistic view of people. And instead of uh, only repairing the worst in people, we must then add to that so that people can move towards flourishing. And he puts forth uh, this concept, this new model, um, this prosperity model, which moves people towards a comprehensive model of well-being. It builds on some of, his, some of his earlier work where he put forth this model um, of happiness. Some of your, your listeners might be familiar with his work around authentic happiness. And it's funny because Seligman says, I'm a scientist. And, mm. you know, the, the happiness, like it got lost into this feel good, like kumbaya. He says, I'm a scientist. Like we have to look at the science of it. And um, that's not where I was going. So I just view this like big, like guy and he's like uh i don't want to be happy <laughs> and it's like it got lost and he's like no we have to look at the empirical work around this and what he does is he continues to build on that and he says happiness is really linked to positive emotion that's important and there's these other elements and those other elements were engagement relationships meaning and accomplishment 
-hmm. That's this PERMA model of well-being. And when you look at that model of well-being, what underpins that is the strength-based approach to how we can build and develop over time all of those different elements of PERMA. And when we can tap into that total comprehensive model, then that leads to a life of flourishing. And that's, we, we're not talking about that enough in education, in our personal lives. And that's what Seligman was calling for. And that's what Kelsey and I, what we're calling for in chapter eight, is that we can no longer just continue to look at all right, what's wrong, what's not working. Let's continue just trying to get us back to the state of zero because zero is empty. We need to add to that tapping across all five of those domains of well-being. And when we can do that, we can get educators to where they're excited to come into work, where they have meaning in what they're doing, where they have a sense of accomplishment. And it's this new prosperity, which is driven by flourishing. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, for our listeners who are um, maybe more familiar with psychology, right, I, there's various different psychologists, whether they're you know, developmental, cognitive behavioral, et cetera, who have their different models of um, the stages of self-fulfillment and attainment and achievement. And, and in Seligman's case, right, this flourishing is at the top end. This is when you're living your best life, right? Um, you have you have all these things covered and you're really going beyond um, just the the building blocks and you're, you're thriving, flourishing. And, um, you know, and as the reframe states, educators deserve to flourish. And so when you picture one, you picture the other, um, and, you know, for the educators yourselves, you may kind of say, hmm, <laughs> that, does, that doesn't sound like what I'm used to or what I'm used to hearing, um, right, that I'm supposed to be operating in this state of flourishing. Um, and and also, okay, and if I'm doing that, um, what's, you know, how do we tie it back to the rest of the book, right? What's the relationship to what we talked about? We talked touched on educators a few times. You know, we talked about them with respect to the data conversation and some other pieces about how they play into that. Um, but can you really uh, help to tie this together for us for this? You know, when we talk about how we want educators to be flourishing, how that helps us to achieve, um, you know, these other objectives that you've written about throughout with uh, really kicking this deficit thinking to the curve. Yeah, we really in the book wanted and needed, you know, to touch on every single aspect of education. And um, it's really not talked about enough the role that our well-being, I mean, we talk about it in, in ways that I think are, are harmful, first of all, but we don't talk about educator well-being, teacher well-being in the sense that when we are feeling good, feeling like our work is meaningful, our students can sense that like they can feel that and they, you know, are more likely to, to experience those positive outcomes as well because of the energy that we are, you know, kind of giving to them. Right now, we are unfortunately in a space where we're hearing all oh, teacher burnout, toxic environments, all of these things. Um, and we're not really talking about the alternative to that. So when we talk about deficit thinking, we talk about being strength-based, it really starts with yourself. So we need to be strength-based in our own practices and how we view ourselves, how we view our work in order to be able to be strength-based and how we work with students. So this really is kind of like the whole, you know, we're talking about locus of control. Like this is the biggest area of control that you have, which is your own well-being, your own ability to flourish, your own ability to, to make a difference and feel that your work is impactful. Yeah. I mean, you really do, you know, you take people where you're going, right? Um, the one thing that's come up a couple of times on this show and we thought about, okay, well, how are our conversations around student engagement and wanting students to enjoy their learning incompatible with our treatment of educators? And okay, well, if we're creating school environments whereby educators aren't enjoying their work uh, and they're the ones who are interacting with students, then doesn't it make sense that students aren't going to be enjoying their learning, right? Um, so, in, you know, in this case, if, if I'm going one of two directions, if I'm either an educator who's having this at-risk, you know, deficit model mindset and just saying it's about 
survival. It's about just doing good enough, right? Then um, that's what our students will be. Right. And yeah, and if educators, you know, are recognizing that they deserve to flourish and they're feeling like they're that's what they're in pursuit of, um, then their students can come along with them and say, look, we all mean to be flourishing here. Um, it would be it would be really difficult for an educator to be flourishing and for their students to be languishing, right? Um, it really would. So if we have uh, these objectives for our kids, that's a great place to start um, and also a great place to, to kind of wrap up and tie it all together. Um, so a question that we often wrap up here with, and, and you guys, you have the advantage here um, because we often ask if a reader can only start with or only check out one part of the book, what should it be? And since there's two of you, you each get to pick a part. So double, double the pleasure. Um, so yeah, I mean, and a lot of times, you know, I think about this as if somebody's picking it up and they're kind of trying to decide, is this, is this what I need? Um, what's, what chapter would you say, read this chapter. And if you get this one, you'll get some great ideas and you can use them. And if you don't read the rest of the book, you still learn something, but two, this will really tell you what it's all about. What, what would you say, Kelsey? I, um, I know, so I know the data chapter is my favorite, but if I were to recommend it to someone else, I know not everyone loves data like I do. So I am going to switch it up and go with reframe five, which we actually didn't talk about today. And I think Byron might have wanted to choose that chapter too. So I apologize, but that one is on building on student strengths. So that's the chapter where we offer a lot of practical tips and tools for teachers, educators to use to identify um, the strengths of their students that I think we don't really talk a lot about in the field of education. Perfect. Kelsey and I, this is why we wrote a book together. Like we're just on the same page with that. And, you know, I, I just think that one's important. And, you know, you, I think how you ask the question, like if people pick this up and just read one chapter, I mean, that's the essence of, of what we're getting at. Like it's possible to do that. And this is how. So hands down for, I think, Kelsey and I, chapter five. Yeah, I think I, I, that's a great one. And, and that's one that, um, yeah, certainly comes up from time to time here about just, you know, even just about how students are able to spend their time and, and are able to, you know, what they're able to focus on in their learning, right? Are they focused on things that where they have strengths and that they're good at and that they love, or are is all of their time spent trying to quote unquote catch up on the other areas? And uh, and even, you know, you know, you hear these stories frequently of people who have become particularly successful in whatever area of life and um, maybe they had a, a certain weakness and it's like well I became successful despite this weakness and you know maybe but maybe it maybe it had nothing to do with that at all <laughs> maybe you became successful because of your strengths right and do we think about that at schools and say you know is this child going to succeed despite these what we perceive to be their deficits well no are they going to be successful because of their strengths and are we prioritizing that um and so, you know, real, yeah, a lot of great opportunity in reframing our thinking and, and language around this. Um, so for the two of you, the book's out now. We're going to put that in the show notes here. We'll also put your social media information, but is there anything else you're working on or any other um, any uh, place you want to direct our listeners? We are working on a lot of things that I'm going to keep a secret for now. Um, we've got a lot of things in the works, so definitely follow us on social media, follow Hacking Deficits as well um, for any announcements or updates on um, other projects and things that Byron and I are going to be working on. Great. Awesome. So we will put the information in the show notes about hack Hacking Deficit Learning, Hacking Deficit Thinking, and where to find it. Um, please do subscribe to the Authority Podcast for more in-depth author interviews and visit bpodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Thanks again, Byron and Kelsey, for being here. Yes, thank you Thanks so for much. having us. So listeners, please do check out that information in the show notes. 
Uh, you can find out where to purchase Hacking Deficit Thinking and more resources from the authors. Please do subscribe to the Authority Podcast in your favorite podcast app. You'll get more interviews like this one with a variety of great authors, and we really do appreciate your support. Please visit bpodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. We have uh, many shows there, and, and we have new ones being added regularly. So please do check that out, and we'll catch you here next time on The Authority. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.